0: Good day to all of our investors and general listeners. This is the Rudd Commentary. My name is Josh Rudd, and I'll be your host on this presentation today. And with me today are two very important people at our firm, Jack Kerr, our Capital Markets Associate, who you may already know if you're a regular listener. You may not know we are also being joined by our silent partner, a person that you may only hear should she have a strong conviction or need to speak if I blindly wander off the road. Yes, our very special Morgan Lenquist is behind the controls and making all this possible. Morgan, thank you for all you do. Oh, thanks. For all our new listeners who may not be familiar with our firm, The Rudd Company is a wealth management firm headquartered in Fort Worth, Texas. We manage investments for clients across the country and specialize in active portfolio management, retirement planning, and the setup and management of employer-sponsored retirement plans. Jack, our topic today is investing in companies outside the U.S. and why having a more global perspective may have some benefits for investors.
1: Yeah, I'm excited and glad we have a guest speaker this time around.
0: That's right, Jack. Later on in the program, we will hear from Craig Blessing, who is on the International Portfolio Management Team at Thornburg Investment Management. So Jack, can you guess what the most exciting news item was for me this week? What was that? So I'm really excited about uh, the U.S. being in the space race again. What what'd you think about that?
1: Yeah, it's exciting.
0: So SpaceX successfully delivered two Americans to the International Space Station this week. And, you know, we were all watching that, hanging on edge the first time they were going to launch, and it was canceled. But we got them up there. And you know what I was thinking about is you've got two cosmonauts from Russia, and you've got three U.S. astronauts up at the space station, and they're all guys, right? So I'm thinking, what do you think they do in their time off? Oh,
1: I, I have no clue.
0: You know, I was really stressing about this, that they were probably playing poker, and given our topic today, I couldn't figure out what currency they would use in their poker games, right? So what What do you <laughs> think?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. You think they're converting it to U.S. dollars?
0: No, I, I'd fit in very uh, well up there. They're using Starbucks.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad you provided that, that humor. I did not have that in our market update today, so...
0: Jack, before we begin today, why don't you uh, take our listeners into the trading room with you over the last month and, and share some timely updates?
1: Yeah, definitely. First thing I want to talk about here is the consumer. It's been a frequent topic for us over the last couple months, and today I want to talk about the savings rate, Josh. I don't know if you were aware, but the consumer savings rate over the last few months jumped to 33%, which is the highest it's been in the last 40 years. I'm not going to say this is surprising, given that there wasn't much to spend money on while we were in the shutdown. In addition to that, the unemployment benefits were higher than usual with most people receiving an extra $600 per week. So I know most people were focused more on the unemployment data, which is the unemployment rate being around 20% and GDP decreases as our economy grinded to a halt. But this may point to some pent up demand as people start to save some more money. You know, that's a topic we talked a lot about on our last podcast. You have any thoughts about that?
0: I agree with you 100%. It's really not surprising given what we've just been through. You know, I I took a look, I remember looking at the data and just thinking about that the higher savings rate was really caused by three things. First, you know, for me, the lockdown just created a barrier to spend. You know, we couldn't go out and we couldn't spend money. So you saw that the PCE, those personal consumption expenditures, declined quite a bit in that same report. But also, as you had mentioned we had we had a big increase in cash because of the record stimulus program that we had a lot of that right. probably went into bank accounts and just sat there and and we didn't have that opportunity to spend but really to a lesser extent I, I've seen this a lot on the media about the fear impact hoarding and spending and we 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 joked about you know the the toilet paper and some other things a while back but the main point is that there was probably an impact from fear and just deciding to build up a little more cash. So I think those three things that were pretty clear drivers to the increased savings rate, as you had mentioned.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And as you were talking there, one other thought popped in my head. And do you think any of this quick bounce back in the stock market had anything to do with the higher savings rate? Maybe more people wanting to invest in the stock market, just get in as we sold off and were near lows for the last couple of years. And I know now we're only a few percentage points down this year in the broader market. So wanted to see if you thought there was any correlation there.
0: I do. And I believe that a lot of money managers and investors feel that there's going to be a, a very high level of pent-up demand that hits the market. And I've modified my view a little bit over the last couple of weeks on this point. And we talked about this a few podcasts ago, that I, I believe there will be some habit adjustment in, in industries like travel and you know some of the large-scale retail and, and telecommuting and, and that'll impact how consumers work and spend their money. But you know, at the end of the day, we're probably going to get back to spending money. And we're going to do that at a very high rate. Because I think, as as you pointed out, that savings rate points out that there's a lot of disposable income. And if there's one thing we do in America, it's spend money.
1: Yeah, I agree. You brought up some sectors there that, you know, we may see some changes. And that's actually the next thing I wanted to get into today were some performance and sector trends in the market I've seen over the last couple of weeks. As we talked about last time, technology stocks have outperformed the broader market, especially in the first four months of the year. And specifically, core industrial manufacturing blue chip stocks, during this they did sell off a little bit more. But over the last few weeks, I've noticed an interesting trend. Industrial stocks and some of those manufacturing blue chip names that I just mentioned, they've started to close the gap a little bit. Granted, they did sell off more drastically. I don't think this is necessarily unexpected, but It seems that as if we get more economic data, that these core non-technology companies in the economy are starting to perform a little bit better in the stock market. I know this is just short term and there's definitely still some uncertainty out there and a couple bad headlines may lead to further volatility. Do you have any comments on this trend, especially with your experience managing money in previous downturns?
0: Oh, no, thank you. I definitely want to comment on this. Our, our firm's culture, Jack, as you know, has historically been focused on higher quality firms, things like free cash flow and dividends and and really not only the ability to pay dividends and increase those dividends, but you know in the last decade, just the willingness to do so. You know, you had mentioned growth's clear out performance over the last decade or even longer. and And sometimes, Jack, I feel like we're swimming upstream given our strategy and and our firm's culture. But at the end of the day, when you have, a concern over trust. I feel investors tend to run back to the more fundamental points of why they invest, where they're looking for things like free cash flow, strong management team, a competitive advantage in the marketplace, and not, not necessarily what would be the latest fad or right. uh, the momentum trades in the market. So overall, my point is I feel very good about our strategy, our firm strategy going forward. So we're more focused on, a comp- on the company fundamentals or, or what I think more oftenly referred to as bottom-up research and strategy. But this puts us in a position to select companies to lead if investor trust, as I had mentioned, in public companies continues to wane. So I really like where we are.
1: Yeah, I agree. Before we transition into our topic for today, one more headline I saw actually right before we got on this podcast is that private payrolls dropped about 60% less than expected in May the numbers were better than expected, and the markets responded pretty positively to that. So that's just one headline there I wanted to bring up. Like Josh and I said, we wanted to move into international investing today. Josh, one quick thing I wanted to bring up to kind of segue us into that topic is tensions between the US and China are becoming more serious and may have a longer term impact on investment returns. In a recent JP Morgan economic study, their economist said that we should expect China's GDP to eclipse the U.S. sometime in the 2030s. While the time frame is unclear at this point, I think that's certainly been a concern for a while now. In addition to this study, we've we've seen tensions grow with the trade war, coronavirus, and other various headlines over the last few years. Josh, I'm curious, is there any message you have to our listeners in response to this study or even just in response to the growing tensions between our two countries?
0: Absolutely. I don't want to take the thunder away from our guest speaker, who I'm sure is, is listening and very eager to discuss. This has been brought up many times over the last decade, and I don't know if it's been taken seriously. It's, it's clear that there's been a shift based on recent policy out of Washington. There's a very clear shift. The relationship between the U.S. and China, it, it will define economics for the next decade and beyond. There's no doubt as China becomes more self-sufficient. This will most likely present opportunities for investments outside the U.S., but will certainly increase risk, specifically in the emerging markets, which have attracted just a large amount of capital over the last few years.
1: I agree there, and I'm, like you, interested to get our thoughts from Craig today on that.
0: Jack, it's clear that the investment environment's changed quite a bit uh, just since the beginning of, of 2020, so it's a great opportunity to introduce our guest speaker today. I'd like to introduce Craig Blessing. He's on the Portfolio Management Team here at Thornburg Investment Management. And just a little background, our firm has worked with Thornburg for quite a long time, and we respect them on the fixed income side, but they also have a specialization on the international side in the investment management industry as well. Welcome, Craig, to our podcast today. Thank you very
2: much, and thank you for having me.
0: Well, we were talking a little bit earlier about all the uncertainty In the world today and how that has impacted the investment environment. So I'd just like to start this off right away and ask you, why in the world would investors, why should they consider investing outside the United States?
2: Yep. Great question. And probably since I work on international products, the one that we get most of the time. I think the simple answer is prudence and diversification. But within that, I think there are some very specific reasons why international has become more attractive over the period why, where the U.S. has been outperforming. Just as a note, today the U.S. represents about 25% of global GDP. 20 years ago it accounted for a third, and we think its share is going to fall to about 15 to 17% over the next five years. So clearly that implies that the rest of the world, not a bad thing, particularly in emerging market countries, is growing faster than the U.S., And today, about 75% of the world's publicly traded equities are listed abroad. Yet, when you look at client portfolios, only about 25% of equity funds held by U.S. investors are international. So why is that? The biggest reason, and a simple one that we all know, is the recent and long outperformance of U.S. equity markets. The SP 500 has outperformed most international indices since the end of 2007. SP 500 is up about 8% a year, while most international indices have actually been about flat. That's a cumulative outperformance, not annualized, of over 150%. And add to that what you mentioned recent uncertainty, COVID 19, political noise, foreign cultures, currency volatility. It's pretty easy to see why a lot of U.S. investors have been staying at home, particularly given that the U.S. feels better and is performing better. So why should investors consider investing outside the U.S.? Well, along with the huge dispersion in performance, where the U.S. has outperformed international for 12 to 13 years, and the dispersion in value that's created we think international stocks are cheap relative to U.S., as I mentioned, I think the biggest argument is simply prudence, and diversification. And with your permission, I'm on this site for principal reasons. The first reason is that leadership between the U.S. and international changes all the time. It's usually unpredictable. And a strategic allocation of some size to international is the only way to catch those shifts. MSCI, big index provider, data for international stock markets, goes back to 1970 when they developed their first uh, index for developed international markets. So we have about 50 years of U.S. versus international equity performance data. And of all of those years, through the end of last year, the S&P 500 index has outperformed in 26 years and international in 24, pretty close to 50-50. And as I said, pretty difficult to predict. The second reason is that that outperformance has historically tended to run in cycles with leadership between U.S. and international persisting for a period of years at a time. That change in leadership is also pretty unpredictable. For example, international outperformed the S&P 500 for most of the 70s and 80s, including a run from 1982 to 89, when it roughly doubled the annual performance of the S&P. Between 1989 and 2000, the U.S. roughly tripled the annual performance of international, driven, as we all know, by the outperformance of U.S. technology and internet stocks, particularly in the second half of the 90s. Now, as that tech bubble deflated, markets gradually recovered. For the following seven years, international stocks returned about 8% a year, while the U.S. returned about 2%. And as we know, recent history, since 2007, the U.S. has outperformed, driven once again, interestingly, by technology and growth stocks, returning about 8% a year while international has been flat. Reason number three, today international appears cheap to the U.S. The recent outperformance of the U.S. has also created a valuation dispersion between the U.S. and international. So simply international markets look cheap relative to the U.S. on an historical basis. At the end of May, the EFE, E-A-F-E index, that's at that MSCI developed international index, at the end of May, the EFI was about 1.8 standard deviations, sorry, technical term, 1.8 standard deviations cheap to the long-term relationship between U.S. and EFI valuations using one-year forward price to earnings ratio. Statistically, when a market is 1.8 standard deviations cheap, that only happens about 10% or less at the time. So you can vary the time period, you can vary the indices, but international looks pretty historically cheap versus the U.S. Not a reason for performance to turn, but a reason to have a foot in international. The final reason is simply that adding international broadens your opportunity set in terms of countries, markets, and individual companies. So if you're talking about U.S. large cap, which is 80 to 90% of the market, it's either the S&P 500 or the Wilshire 1000. So let's say 500 to 1000 stocks. The, the index that we use for a lot of our funds, which is called the MSCI ACWI, ACWI All Country World Index XUS, is a pretty good proxy for international. It covers about 85 percent of the market, developed and emerging. It's got 2400 companies and 48 countries in it. So adding international to your investment set. Simply increases the opportunity set, triples it, in fact, along with a lot of different economic systems, cycles, and currencies that give you opportunities for diversification and for active managers to add value. So, we think international equity markets are less efficient and, as we've noted, potentially more cheaply valued than the US. And they've got smaller asset bases, can be less efficient, have less research coverage different accounting, language, cultures. And we think the best way to capture that inefficiently, simply put, is a strategic rather than a a tactical allocation to international, since terms of market leadership are really difficult to call.
0: Well, Craig, I I appreciate that. You know, as you were talking about market efficiencies and the differences between the international and and the domestic markets, I'm just thinking a little bit about capital flows across borders and the impact and influence that has over these valuations. You know, we talk a lot about here how a lot of the real estate markets and you look at the uh, urban areas such as New York and California have been greatly influenced by foreign capital coming in. Talk to us a little bit about that foreign capital and influencing those valuations and disparity between, say, companies that may be trading at much lower multiples in uh, larger international firms than, say, domestic firms. Do you see a lot of capital chasing a lot of the growth we've seen here in the U.S., similar to the real
2: estate market? So there isn't really a reason why international investors should be any different than U.S. investors, and they'll tend to go where they see attractive returns and where they see relative safety. So an investor in fill-in-the-blank country faced with some economic or political uncertainty at home or simply wanting to diversify is going to tend to gravitate to what appears to be the safer and more stable markets. So they're prone to the same thing that U.S. investors tend to do, although I don't have any ready data on that. But as you correctly noted, capital flows internationally, whether they're leaving the U.S. and going into other countries or leaving other countries and coming into the U.S., are major drivers of markets. And as the markets get smaller and you get into emerging markets, they are sometimes really important, even overwhelming factors.
1: Thanks, Craig. And I I found it particularly interesting when you talked about the performance cyclicality compared to the US and the international markets. I didn't realize the length of those cycles was so long. Thanks for that. On a different note, one of the questions I get here the most is just about different ways for our investors to get international exposure. I know you talked about the benefits and things like that, but say an investor comes to you and, and asks, how can I get exposure? Can, is it easy as just opening up an investment account and investing directly into those foreign exchanges, or what are the different ways one can do that?
2: Well, as an individual investor, unless you're a sizable one, investing directly on foreign exchanges can be difficult and, in some cases, impossible. You know, you have to you have to worry about foreign exchange. You have to set up accounts. You have to worry about local regulations, potential taxation of both dividends and capital gains. So while all of our products invest directly in foreign markets, for the most part, sometimes we'll buy an ADR if it's more liquid, an individual investor might not want to do that. A lot of foreign companies, I think something like 2,000 or more, are also listed on U.S. exchanges or trade over the counter in ADR format, so American depository receipts. Uh, But not all foreign companies have ADRs. And a lot of really attractive opportunities I could think of some Chinese A-shares that we've invested in and they're really nice returns as an example. A lot of attractive opportunities overseas aren't yet listed in ADR format, although it's pretty certain that they eventually will be if they're attractive enough. As an interesting side note, ADR listings can also be subject to political pressure we have a bill pending in congress that's highly likely to pass called the holding foreign countries accountable act it's mostly aimed at china and it could lead to the delisting of a number of primarily chinese adrs for mainly accounting reasons in 3 years if they don't if they don't comply with the provisions of the act but that's a that's a minor inconvenience you can also get access to foreign companies through a mutual fund active or a passive index fund, an ETF or a separately managed account. And in those cases, you're simply paying for that access with a management fee and fund or separate account expenses. And there's the additional risk of what index you choose uh, and how well your manager tracks that index in the case of an index fund or an ETF. And in the case of an active fund, whether or not your manager beats their benchmark index.
1: And Craig, can you talk about some of the different costs involved with those different investments that you named? I know, for example, ADRs, they have taxes on their dividends, correct?
2: I believe so. So don't take me for tax advice, but yes, most foreign dividends are subject to U.S. taxation or to withholding tax, which can be difficult to recoup if you're an investor. Investing directly on a foreign exchange can be costly in terms of setting up the account and the pipes that you need to get access in terms of buying the foreign exchange that you need to to invest in it. So difficult for, for direct access. ADRs, as you noted, relatively easy, but potentially some tax consequences. And obviously mutual funds or ETFs, whether they're passive or active, are subject to different levels of expenses and management fees.
0: Well, Craig, one of the things that I was really looking forward to on this call is just sharing with with our listeners that we really enjoy using and take advantage of either the actively managed funds that, that your firm specializes in or index funds that are available simply because we are not experts and don't have the access to a lot of the information on a lot of these smaller companies. You had mentioned, for example, emerging markets, trying to do research on a lot of these companies without having a team that can put boots on the ground or, or really dig into a lot of these financial statements is very difficult. So we really appreciate firms like yours that are experts on these types of companies outside of the U.S., and, and that provides a lot of value. I'd like to just move into one of the topics that we discussed on our last podcast, specifically risk, and ask you about if there are any specific risks that are inherent in investing outside the U.S.?
2: Well, you you bet, and you've you've seen it recently. Although the U.S. Has, has been pretty bumpy this year as well, but like all investments, there are definitely risks involved in investing internationally, and there are some additional risks involved with international investments that you don't get if you're investing in the U.S. Currency risk is definitely upfront. Currencies can really be volatile, and a major source of you know a fund returns positive or negative. Different managers handle that in different ways. Some managers hedge all currency risk, some hedge no currency risk, and some hedge partially or tactically. At Thornburg, we're bottom up active managers. So our approach to currency risk is to hedge tactically when we think it makes sense given a currency risk. And when we do that, we're cognizant of the fact that a lot of, and we follow it closely, that a lot of a company's revenues might not be denominated in the currency of the country where it's listed or the country where it's headquartered. So we always look at what the revenue split of our portfolio is before we consider hedging. Liquidity and market efficiency are both risks and they're both related. Uh, that risk is less in the U.S. just given the liquidity and the size of the market, but it's not entirely absent most of the countries represented in the MSCI indices or in the set of companies that we would invest in are relatively large and relatively liquid, but some companies and markets are less so. That obviously gets to be more of an issue as you move away from major or developed markets into emerging markets or even into what are called uh, frontier markets. Now, as a manager we tend to invest in more liquid companies that have an average daily trading volume of 20 million or more. So we tend to have a bit of a large or even mega cap focus and occasionally buy mid-cap stocks when we think they're attractive. As I mentioned before, there are cultural differences. There are accounting differences. There are regulatory differences. And foreign companies may have less research coverage than US companies or developed countries. And they may be less widely held which could be a source of mispricing and actually provide an opportunity. But suffice it to say that having a manager that understands the local environment that you're investing in, we think is a plus.
3: And finally,
2: as we saw in 2018 with trade disputes and obviously more recently, politics and political conflict, economic volatility can be an issue. Um, As in the case of the US versus China in both 2018, and it appears beginning again in 2020, or recently in the case of disagreements among members of the European Union. So there are definitely risks in international investing.
1: Yeah, I imagine the political risks, especially with so many different countries, different laws, that's got to be difficult for a team to assess.
2: You know, we have portfolio managers of so many nationalities. I think of a couple of the portfolio managers that I work with that are U.S. citizens for many years but grew up in China. In fact, one was a bank examiner for the Chinese Central Bank they know the local cultures really well. They're on social media. They're reading the press. They're talking to local contacts. So, you know, having a good active manager that really knows your markets and really knows your stocks from the bottom up is definitely an advantage.
0: You just hit my comment right on the head there. When I did spend a little bit of time out in China, it's it's really striking the business culture and the differences between how business is transacted in foreign countries. And it, I would think it's just critical not just to have boots on the ground, but to have someone that's familiar with that culture and, and transacting business there. So thank you very much. Before we move on, Craig, is there, are there any other factors that you feel that investors should consider when investing uh, outside the U.S.? Is there anything we haven't covered already?
2: I think we pretty much covered it. I mean, it's it's really what do you want your allocation to be? We don't think it's, a, it's an if, but a what do you want your allocation to be, given the current environment and given your current risk tolerance, and given your decision of how much you might want to invest internationally, what type of an investment vehicle is best for your particular circumstances?
0: I appreciate you bringing that up. And just to say again, I know we said this earlier today, but our role here at the firm, at the Rudd Company, you know, we do not have a monopoly on all the best ideas in the investment world and are very... Uh, Appreciative of of uh, Craig jumping on the call and sharing with us some of their expertise in investing outside the U.S. I think something that that our listeners would love to hear about is just tell us a little bit about Thornburg's unique approach to investing uh, in the international markets, and really, what's your value proposition there, Craig?
2: With pleasure. So Thornburg Investment Management is an independently owned money manager. We're headquartered in Santa Fe, New Mexico, or as we like to say away from the noise of the major market centers, which we think leads to more independent thinking. We manage about 36 billion as of March the 31st. So given more favorable markets, that will probably be higher uh, when we get to May 31 numbers. About 30% of that 36 billion is in international or global equity. And a further 28% is in global multi-asset products that primarily focus on equity. As we like to say, uh, as, our, as our motto, we're highly active, high conviction, and benchmark agnostic. What does that mean? Rather than having a siloed approach to investing, where different investment teams have their own analysts and think independently, we think that creates inefficiencies. So since our inception, we've had a flat, collaborative, generalist, benchmark agnostic approach to investing, including international, which we think gives our clients differentiated investment solutions and importantly, differentiated return streams for diversification.
0: Well, Craig, thank you very much for uh, walking our listeners through your process. I know that was really valuable. And uh, we definitely appreciate Thornburg's perspective on the current market and a lot of the characteristics, challenges, risk and rewards for investing outside the U.S. Thank you. Thank you. As always, I would like to take a moment to invite you, our investors and listeners, to share your comments and ideas for future topics of discussion on this program. Again, our goal in doing these is not just to inform, but to add value and give our clients guidance on topics relevant to them in a simple and easy format. We can only do that if we know what you want to hear. So please take some time throughout the month to send us a message through our website at therudcompany.com. Or send us an email to Rudco at therudcompany.com with your comments and suggestions. We would love to hear from you. In closing, I'd like to again say thank you to Craig Blessing for joining our program and sharing some insights on international investing. I would also like to thank all our clients. Without you, we would not have a job. Thank you for your trust you place in our firm. All of us here at the Rudd Company have a passion for wealth management and helping you achieve long-term financial success. Thank you very much for listening today. This is the Rudd Commentary. I am your host, Josh Rudd. And for all of us here at the Rudd Company, invest long and prosper.
3: This commentary is distributed for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Nothing herein constitutes any offer to sell or solicitation of any offer to buy any security. All investment strategies and investments involve risk of loss, including the possible loss of principal invested, and nothing herein should be construed as a guarantee of any specific outcome or profit. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Any opinions expressed by employees of the Rudd Company are the Rudd Company's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of any affiliates. The opinions expressed by guest speakers are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Rudd Company or any affiliates. Guest appearances on this program does not imply the Rudd Company's endorsement of any entity, person, product, service, or investment. All opinions are current and only as of the date of recording and are subject to change without notice.